Today, we are going to begin a new sermon series entitled, uh, Welcome to Sound City. We have recently wrapped up going through the Gospel of Mark, doing a survey of the Gospel of Mark, and today we're starting a new sermon series, and I'm really looking forward to these next eight weeks together, really diving in and looking at the biblical teachings that underlie and really frame who we are and what we do as a church. And let me just say from the outset that we have three basic goals with this sermon series for the next eight weeks. The first goal is this, to simply teach you what God's word says uh, about a church and things that are valuable and important to us as a church. So we want you, the, the members and those who attend Sound City, to understand the biblical convictions that help frame uh, the leadership. The second thing is we want to use this, this sermon series as a way to help finalize our membership process. As, as many of you probably know, we have relaunched as of the first of the year as a, a new church. We've been going through uh, kind of a provisional or interim series or phase as a church. We really want to uh, begin to move into a longer term phase and this teaching series will help uh, serve that purpose. And then here's the third, the third goal. And this is the most important goal with this teaching series. The goal is to not make this teaching series be about us as a church, but to be about our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing in the world that you need every Sunday is a 45-minute infomercial for a church. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? What you need is to see the glory of God on display. What you need to see is your Savior. And so as such, we want this sermon series to be for us as a church, but not about us as a church. My hope, and all of the pastors who will be teaching, our hope is that it would be about Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen? So that is the stated goal. That is the stated purpose for this teaching series. And with those goals in mind, let's go ahead and turn our attention to this week's topic, the mission that God has given to us as a church. We will start our time together today in John chapter 20, verse 19. If you have a Bible, we'd invite you to turn there. If you do not have a Bible, you can easily uh, download one onto your phone, or we do have some out in the lobby. We would love to give you a Bible if you don't own one. That would be uh, our gift to you and our joy to serve you in that way. <clears throat> but for those of you who have your Bibles, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, we'll read this passage straight through. I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time unpacking what it is that God wants to teach us here today. Read with me if you would. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church family. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word to teach us, to correct us, to train us. God, I acknowledge right now that each and every single one of us here in some way, shape, or form needs instructed. We need corrected. God, my prayer is that you would send the Holy Spirit to be present with us now. God, that you would give each and every one of us soft hearts, uh, listening and receptive ears to hear your truth from your word. 
God, I pray you would guard my mouth. You would guard my lips. Help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth from your word. And God, may we see the glorious mission that you've called us on, the mission that comes from your heart. And may it not be about us as a church, but may it always be about your son, Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name and for his glory. And everybody said, amen. My, my basic premise uh, for today is this, that human beings are hardwired for purpose, for direction, and for goals. We're hardwired to have meaning and a mission in our lives. This is the reason why uh, so many men and an increasing number of women work so hard at their jobs, even sometimes to the neglect of their families because they want their lives to count for something. Uh, this this hardwiring for uh, a mission is why so many younger men especially uh, play video games because it's a mission. There's always a, a princess to rescue for some of our nerdier uh, video gamers in the room, right? There's, there's a mission to accomplish. There's a level to beat. And in fact, many young men in today's society have traded a real mission for a digital or an online one. Mission is the reason why books like Rick Warren's uh, bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, sells something like, I don't know, 43 quadrillion copies. It's, it's the best-selling nonfiction book, second only to the Bible, The Purpose Driven Life. What's your purpose? What is it you're here for? Quick show of hands, confession. How many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life, right? Okay, that's like a lot of you. How many of you have it on your shelf and you haven't yet read it because you haven't found the purpose for it yet, right? I actually heard uh, Rick Warren speak on it a couple times. He said he had no idea the nerve that he was going to be striking, the, the, the massive amount of response to the book when he wrote that book. I would even go so far as to say that our hardwiring for purpose and, and mission and direction in life is why the nation lost its collective minds this last week over a new trailer for the Star Wars movies, right? It's not just nostalgia, and it's not just hope that a decent director could resurrect that dead series, right? It's because it's all about the battle between good and evil, light and dark. There's, there's something in us that loves stories like that. I've been reading the, the book The Hobbit with my daughters over the last few weeks, and they love this, this sense of, of the mission and they're heading uh, to where the, the dwarves are going. I don't remember what it's called. I'm not that deep of a nerd, but it's been fun, right? My submission to you is not just that we are hardwired for mission, but the reason that we are hardwired for mission is because as human beings, we are created in the image and the likeness of God who himself is a missional God. God is a sent and a sending God. God himself is a missional God, and the reason why we are hardwired for mission is because as human beings, we are created in his image and in his likeness. And as we talk about our mission statement as a church, my hope today is that you would see that the mission statement of the church is not just an arbitrary set of uh, biblical cliches or, or catchphrases that are strung together, but you would see that the mission that God gives to his church, his capital C church, not just Sound City Bible Church, but all churches who call on the name of Jesus, the mission that he gives to his people comes out of the mission that he himself has been on. And we're gonna start in John chapter 20 and we're gonna see uh, this set up. If you have your Bibles, jump back with me. Verse 19. Spend a minute or two unpacking these verses. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Okay, let's pause for a minute. Little context. The evening of that day, the first day of the week. If you flip back a few uh, paragraphs, if you flip back a few verses, you'll see that this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. On Friday, Jesus was crucified publicly, visibly. 
On Sunday, the disciples went to the tomb and they found that it was empty. They have not yet seen him. The majority of them, anyways, have not yet seen him. And says that they, were, uh, they had the doors locked where they were for fear of the Jews, for fear of the Jewish authorities. They had just watched Jesus be publicly tried, humiliated, beaten, and crucified. They knew that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities did not want any sort of rival claims to power. They didn't want any rival claims to authority. And now that the tomb has been discovered empty, everyone's asking the question, what happened? Where did his body go? The Bible actually tells us in Matthew's gospel that the rulers and the authorities tried to blame it on the disciples themselves. Oh, they stole Jesus' body and they want people to believe that he rose from the dead. So they're hiding, terrified in a locked room because their lives are quite literally on the line. We know that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead, amen? The tomb is not empty because they stole the body. This is a resurrection, but they have not yet seen Jesus. And Jesus came and stood among them. Let's just pause for a minute. Locked doors, don't exactly know how Jesus came and stood among them, but the next words he says are, peace be with you, which is kind of like, thank you, Jesus. Uh, you just terrified me by appearing in the middle of this locked room. Now I have to go change my tunic, right? I, this is not in the Bible. This is probably my own spin or interpretation on it, but I get the feeling that Jesus does things like this to his disciples all the time to keep them a little bit off kelter, just to keep them guessing. Jesus shows up in the middle of a locked room and says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, and his side. He showed them where the nail holes went through his hands. He showed them the place where the spear had pierced his side and where blood and water had flowed. Then, then, after they saw his hands and his side, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The disciples initially weren't responsive to Jesus in that way doesn't exactly tell us, but there's a few reasons why. Maybe they thought they were seeing a ghost. Maybe they thought they were hallucinating. Maybe uh, there's just natural skepticism. Jesus couldn't possibly have really risen from the dead. Dead men don't get up out of the tomb. But I believe that one of the reasons why they didn't initially recognize him is because Jesus was resurrected. Do you know the difference between resurrection and just rising from the dead? Jesus was resurrected, which means he was given a resurrected, glorified, and perfected body. In the Bible, there are other stories of people who die and then come back to life. But the problem is they all just picked back up where they left off and eventually died again. People like poor Lazarus, like, seriously, I gotta go through this twice? He dies, Jesus raises him from the dead, he lives and dies again. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he rose never again to die. He's alive forevermore, and he's given a resurrection body. And this is a, a side point, but do you know that that is one of the uh, significant portions of the hope of the gospel? That you and I one day, like Jesus, will rise with resurrection bodies, free from the devastating effects of sickness and disease, free from death itself, free from sin. Is that good news to anybody else here this morning? That one day we, like Jesus, will rise? And I think that's partly why they don't recognize him here is because he is resurrected and glorified. And to this day, Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. Continuing on, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He's ministering peace to them. They're fearful. 
They're afraid for their lives. They, they're, they're even cowardly still at this moment. Peace be with you. And then Jesus says these words that are so crucial for our study today. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. You know what's interesting? When he says those words, God the Father is the one who does the sending, and God the Son is the one who is sent. It could be said that God, uh, in the fullness of the Trinity, experiences both the sending and the being sent. The, the, the Christian teaching of the Trinity is this, that there is one God, but that he exists forever in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is fully 100% God. The Son, Jesus, is fully 100% God. The Holy Spirit, fully 100% God. You're saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds like 300%. I know, it's a mystery, I don't get it either. The biblical teaching on the Trinity is not something that we can uh, ultimately grasp with our minds. It is a mystery, but it means that, that there is no one person of the Trinity who's more important than the other. God the Father is not the real God and the Son is some sort of junior executive God and the Holy Spirit's like an intern that they allow to hang around, right? All three persons of the Godhead are fully equal and yet we see here that the Son submits to the will of the Father in being sent. The Son, even though he is equal with the Father, takes a position of lower authority and submits to the will of his Father. If you want the big uh, $5 theological term for that, it's called Functional subordination means that Jesus chooses to take a lower seat and be sent by the Father on the mission that the Father sends him on. And it's not just Jesus. We see the Holy Spirit as well. We see all three persons of the Trinity here. When Jesus had said this, he breathed on them. It's a symbolic act for the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I hope and pray that Jesus, like any good ministry leader, had some breath mints at that moment. Uh, prayer team, take notice, right? When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That is a weighty verse. That is an incredibly weighty passage that, that Jesus entrusts to his followers, to his disciples, the ministry of preaching about God's forgiveness. It should be noted, Jesus is not giving the church the power to just arbitrarily choose some for forgiveness. We're not playing, you know, spin the bottle, some for salvation and some for judgment. We're talking about the proclamation of a gospel and that God is giving that gospel, God is giving that mission through his church. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, Jesus says. And so from this verse, from this big idea that God himself is on mission, that God himself is both sent and sending it, at least for me, it raises a very important question. What was Jesus sent to do? We may have kind of a, a general sense of why Jesus came. We know it has something to do with, with dying on the cross and that sort of stuff, but I wanted to really dive deep into the scriptures and see what the Bible teaches, especially the New Testament teaches, about the purpose, the mission that Jesus was sent on. Because if Jesus says that he's sending us in the same way, we need to have a good understanding of what that mission is. So I believe that there are five primary things that Jesus came to do. Let's look through these uh, briefly. If you're a note taker, uh, limber up. You got lots of opportunities to write down verses to look up later. I uh, would love for you guys to have uh, these references for you to study them later. 
Here's the first thing that the Father sent Jesus to do. It is to perfectly display God's glory and God's character, to show us a perfect picture of what God looks like. In John 14, 8, Jesus says these words. He says, whoever has seen the Father has seen me. That is an astonishing claim. Jesus is in effect saying, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at me. Which, by the way, if he wasn't God, is not the stuff that good teachers say. Sometimes people like to say, oh, Jesus, he was a good moral teacher. No, he wasn't if he claimed to be God and was in fact lying or crazy. He said, if you want to know what God is like, you look at me. If you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, he speaks of Jesus and says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God is invisible. We don't see God with our natural eyes. We don't hear God with our natural ears. We don't touch God with our natural sense of touch. But Jesus is the image. The Greek word there is icon. It's where we get our modern word icon, a, a picture that represents something that we can't see. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And, and then one of my, perhaps one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament, Hebrews verse one, uh, chapter one, verse three, it says this, that Jesus is the radiance of, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the world by the word of his power. This theme of glory is a massive theme throughout the Bible. And it says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Glory means, it's, it's one of those kind of Bible words or churchy words. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it might be hard to kind of understand what glory means, but glory means that something is really valuable. Something is really important. Something is really beautiful. Something is worth looking at. We even see this word radiance, like something is, is shining forth. And when we glory in something, we're drawing attention to it. We're saying, hey, look at this. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Hey, pay attention to this. This is the most amazing or astonishing thing I've ever seen. We are always glorying. A close synonym might be the word worshiping. Not an exact synonym, but a close parallel. We're always worshiping. We're always glorying in things. Maybe you need another example to help you kind of understand this. When, when you go to somebody's Facebook page and you scroll through their Facebook page and every single post is about their workout of the day at CrossFit, right? Right, Eric? They're, they're glorying in CrossFit, this is really important. This is really valuable. They're drawing attention to it. Or when you go through somebody's Facebook feed and every, one, every post is a, a picture of their cute baby, they're glorying in that baby. By the way, this is not a blank check to go out and start judging your friend's Facebook feeds. I'm just trying to help you understand the ways in which this shows. When we think that something is valuable, when we think that something is important, we will point to it. We'll draw attention to it. Whether it's your new favorite band or a new restaurant that you discover, you will say, this is important. And what the Bible says that Jesus pointed to, what Jesus glorified above anything else was his heavenly father. Jesus came to perfectly, perfectly display God's glory and God's character. The second thing that Jesus came to do is this, to proclaim a message of redemption. Some of you forget that Jesus was himself a preacher, that Jesus used his words, that Jesus used the message that the Father had given to him to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of redemption, the gospel of the kingdom. I'll give you just a few examples. In Luke chapter four, 
It says that Jesus went to the synagogue. It says he unrolled the scroll, kind of like how I'm opening the Bible here today, and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's anointed me to preach this message that's gonna be good news to those who are poor. Or in Mark 1, we read this back at the beginning of our series on the gospel of Mark, says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus went throughout the whole region preaching about the good news, the good news about God making reconciliation, about God bringing the kingdom to earth through himself. It's, by the way, I'm really glad that I'm not Jesus. It's much easier to proclaim Jesus. I couldn't imagine going around proclaiming myself. That's what bad preachers do. By God's grace, I and the other pastors hope to never do that. We wanna point you to Jesus. He went through proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom that he himself was inaugurating. Or in Luke chapter 20, verse one, just as an example, it says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, we see that Jesus was often preaching. He was proclaiming this message of redemption. That's the second purpose for which Jesus was sent. The third purpose, why was Jesus sent? What was he sent to do? The third thing he was sent to do was to live a perfect God-glorifying life. The Bible makes an astonishing, astonishing claim. The Bible makes a claim that Jesus never sinned. None of us can make that claim. Some of your spouses are thinking, yeah, especially after the morning we had, right? Like, none of us can make that claim. None of us have lived without sin, but the Bible says that Jesus never sinned at all. 1 Peter 1. This is Peter, by the way, writing, who spent years traveling and ministering with Jesus. He saw Jesus hungry, tired, stressed. And Peter himself says that you were ransomed Uh, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. In the Old Testament, people would offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to find a lamb that was pure, spotless, no blemishes. Under the new covenant, Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the unrepeatable sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, his death on the cross without blemish or without spot. In the next chapter, Peter makes it even more obvious. He says directly that Jesus committed no sin. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin with his actions. He didn't sin with his words. When he was reviled or or mocked or insulted, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. None of us can say that. Can't say that every time I've ever been reviled, I haven't given a couple of sharp remarks back. Jesus didn't sin with his words. Jesus didn't sin with his actions. And Jesus goes so far as to say that the only things he ever does are the things which God asks him to do. John 5, 19 Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus lived a perfect life. 
Jesus lived the perfect life of following his father. This is, this is one of the reasons why uh, back in the 90s, I never wore one of those what would Jesus do bracelets, right? Uh, because on one hand, that's like the most depressing thing ever. What would Jesus do? Live a perfect life and never sin. I didn't even get the bracelet on before I messed that up because I pulled one of my arm hairs and thought a bad word, right? Like we don't, we don't do that perfectly. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus lived a perfect God-glorifying life. And that's one of the things that he came to do. He came to do that. Maybe, maybe this is a, a different way to put this, but I think it's fair. Jesus lived the perfect life of a disciple. He abided with his father. He obeyed his father's will perfectly. That's the third reason. Number four, Jesus came, Jesus was sent to give his life for the salvation of sinners, to give his life for his people. Jesus' death wasn't just a good example. Jesus' death wasn't just some symbolic act that we look back to and say, wasn't that nice how, how Jesus died? No, Jesus' death actually accomplished something for his people. This is what Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10. He says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is essentially saying, I could come and ask all of you to serve me all the time. I could ask you to lay down your lives and give to me and pour out for me and lower yourself for me. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lower myself, serve you, give my life to transform you into something that you didn't used to be, God's people. The Bible says once we were alienated from God, but because of the death of Jesus, we are actually brought into right relationship with God. Those who belong to him are brought into right relationship with God. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Listen, sometimes people wanna say that the death of Jesus makes it possible for people to be saved. To which I would say the Bible says that the death of Jesus makes it actual accomplishment that we can be saved. It doesn't just make it theoretically possible. The death of Jesus actually accomplishes something in us. When Jesus poured out his life for us, those who are Christians are made righteous in the sight of God because of his death. So one of the reasons why Jesus came was to lay down his life to transform us, to make us different than we were, to make us go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, to make us go from alienated from God to being brought into right relationship with God. And number five, Jesus came to be raised from the dead. Now, let me explain something here. In my study this week, this is the part that just struck me the hardest. When we talk about what Jesus came to do, very often I and, and others, even the Bible, will use language like Jesus came to live, to die, to rise again. Jesus rose again. And we make Jesus the, the active agent in the rising. And it's it's. Throughout the pages of the Gospels, especially, Jesus says things like, I will die and I will rise again. The Son of Man will die, the Son of Man will rise. He even goes so far as to say in John chapter 10 that I lay my life down to my own authority. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it back up again. What's really interesting is once you get to the book of Acts and people start preaching about and talking about Jesus' resurrection, from Acts through the end of the Bible, through Revelation, almost 100% Jesus is not spoken of as the active agent, but God the Father is. God raised Jesus. That Jesus didn't get himself up out of the grave, that God, in fact, is the one 
who raised Jesus. I'd never seen that before. And it, it made me think, wow, Jesus, you really identify with us in our weakness, in our place of spiritual death. Jesus was physically dead. And the Bible says time and time again that God raised him. I'll give you a few examples. Acts 2.24, Peter's preaching. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Acts 13.30, another sermon that the apostles are preaching, but God raised him from the dead. Or Romans 8.34, the apostle Paul writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The Bible says that you and I, apart from God's grace, are spiritually dead. We need a miracle of God's grace to bring us to spiritual life. And God, in his grace, he pours out his grace on us and we come to life. Jesus, on that weekend, lay cold and dead and buried in the grave. And God poured out his grace on Jesus and Jesus came to life, physical life, raised from the dead. It is amazing to me that Jesus would go so low to identify with us in our helplessness. I'd never even thought about this before, but in that moment of the resurrection, it's like Jesus is receiving God's grace. He is receiving God's life-changing, transforming power. That is remarkable to me. So Jesus came not just to live, not just to die, but to be raised, to receive God's grace. So, so all of these things, these five things put together, I think we can summarize what God's mission is. Here's, here's my summary, my paraphrased version of what the mission of God is. It's this, God's mission is to display his glory by graciously redeeming a people for himself, the church, through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. You guys tracking with me so far? Does this make sense biblically? This is what God's mission is. God's mission is to show off his glory, to show what he's like, to show how beautiful he is, to show how gracious he is by saving sinners like you and I through his son, Jesus. So now that we know what God's mission is, Jesus said, as the father sent me, so I'm sending you. So here's the question. You ready? Here's the big question. If that's what Jesus came to do, and if Jesus said we're sent in the same way, does that mean we're gonna go do the same things as Jesus? Okay, we've got a yes and a no, okay? You're both right, okay? Yes, we are called in like kind to do the same things that Jesus did, and we'll show that scripturally here in just a moment, but no in the sense that what Jesus did was ultimate. What Jesus did was unrepeatable, Amen? When, when Jesus calls us to lay down our lives for others, he is not calling us to die and atone for the sins of the world. I better get an amen at least from somebody on that, right? He is not calling us to die and atone for the sins of the world. Jesus said, it is finished. In fact, one of the songs we're gonna sing a little later in the service says that. It is finished. What Jesus did was an unrepeatable act of power and of grace. Yet, the Bible does speak in, same, in similar kind, not to the same extent, but in similar kind, our place, our part in doing these same aspects of the mission of God. Let me show this to you. Let's, let's walk through these quickly. Again, just a, a lot of bullet points, a lot of uh, passages for you to go and look up and explore, but see how this all fits together. First of all, we are called, we are sent by God to reflect God's glory and God's character to the world. 
Genesis says that human beings were created in the image and likeness of God, means we're to reflect his glory. But Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem is sin. We don't glorify God as we ought to. We don't live God-glorifying lives because of our sin. But because of the good news of what Jesus did, the apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Being transformed, giving God more and more glory as you follow him. Listen, how many of you know that you are not perfectly giving God glory with your lives? Raise your hand, okay? Good, all the honest people raise their hands, right? But how many of you are thankful that you're not the same person you were five years ago? Yeah, some of your spouses, again, raise their hand really quick, right? We who are Christians who have been saved by God's grace are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord. This comes from Jesus. This comes from seeing Jesus who perfectly reflected the glory of God. We do so imperfectly, but hopefully by his grace, growing and progressing. The Apostle Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 10, giving an instruction to God's people. He says, Whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our whole lives are meant to reflect God's glory, to say he's the most important thing. He's the most beautiful thing. He's the most valuable thing. That's what our lives are for. So we don't do so to the same measure that Jesus does, but we do in like kind. Number two, we are sent by Jesus to share the good news of God's redemption. In Mark uh, chapter 13, Jesus says this gospel needs to be proclaimed to all the nations. Okay, great, Jesus, how are we gonna do that? And he says, through you. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Church, I don't know if you know this, but today in Shoreline, Washington, we are in the end of the earth, right? Jesus was speaking that from Jerusalem. The Pacific Northwest is about as far away as you can possibly get. We're at the end of the earth. Praise God. The words of Jesus came true. Somebody told you about Jesus. You're a Christian today because someone opened their mouth and spoke the message of redemption, spoke the message of forgiveness of sin, spoke the message of reconciliation. It's like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that uh, God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself and then has given us this ministry of reconciliation as though God was making his appeal through us. God is saying, I am willing to not count people's sins against them. I am willing to forgive them because of what my son Jesus did on the cross. Will you go tell somebody? Will you go tell somebody the good news of his grace? Will you go tell somebody the good news of his salvation? So what Jesus did in ultimate, we do as we're able. We do weekly, we do imperfectly, but we, like Jesus, have been given a message to preach of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Receive his grace, receive his forgiveness. And I would say to you that this message of reconciliation is not just given to pastors or church leaders or gifted evangelists like Billy Graham. It is given to the saints of God. Each and every one of you who calls on the name of the Lord has been given this message, this ministry of reconciliation. Do you believe that? Do you know that to be true for yourself? You have been sent by God to share his good news with others. 
Number three, we are sent by God to live godly lives of obedience and abiding. 1 John 5, 2 says that uh, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I love it says his commandments are not burdensome. How do you know that you love God? When you see how beautiful he is, when you see how glorious he is, you want to obey his commandments. And you will start to experience them, not as burdens like, oh, I have to not do those sinful things I really wanted to do. No, it becomes your joy and your delight to please him. His commandments are not burdensome. This is what God has sent us to do. Now, we don't do it perfectly. All of us who have trusted in Jesus still have areas in our life where there's remaining sin. But those who have walked with Jesus for any length of time can tell you as they walk with Jesus, the longer they walk with Jesus, the more their desires start to change and they want to do things that please God and they don't want to do the things that hurt him. Would anybody who's walked with Jesus longer than maybe 15, 20 years say that that's been your experience, that you've seen that to be true? You've seen your desires change? You've seen uh, you want to grow in those ways? That's part of what we're called to do. Matthew 22, Jesus gives the greatest commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then lastly, John 15 says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the vine. He's using an analogy of a vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's the word? Nothing. Jesus says the way to live a, a God-pleasing life, the way to live a, an obedient life is not by gritting your teeth and clenching your fists and trying really hard and stop doing that bad sin. He says, no, abide in me. Read my word. Pray. Spend time with God's people. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Remain in close connection with God. And he will actually bring to life in you the growth that we want and need. Number four, Jesus has sent us, like Jesus, to die to ourselves and to serve others, helping them grow as disciples of Jesus. Matthew 28, Jesus gives this great commission, this great commandment before he ascends into heaven. It's one of the last words he spoke to his disciples. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples. Now, how many of you know that pouring into other people, that investing in other people, that helping them be taught, helping them to grow is hard work? It takes a form of dying to yourself. Would you agree? Anyone who's been a parent would agree with me on that, right? You want to help them, to grow them, to teach them, to train them, and they just don't want you to, right? They just kind of say, no, I got this. I'll figure this out. There's a dying that actually has to happen. There's a lowering that has to happen, especially when it comes to parenting, even quite literally, a, a parent getting down on one knee and speaking to the child face-to-face. -face, hey, I love you. I want to teach you. I want to train you. I want to help you grow. That lowering Again, Jesus speaks of it himself, Mark 9, 35. He sat down and he called the 12. Jesus called his disciples and said, if anyone wants to be first, let him be last of all and a servant of all. Now I know in other people's houses, uh, you never have the, the me first fight with the kids, right? Just my house probably, right? 
Who wants dessert? Me, me first, right? And here's the thing. Deep in all of your hearts is the same monster. <laughs> You've just grown more sophisticated in keeping him down, right? Who wants their tax refund? Me first, right? <laughs> Jesus says you're going to die to yourself. You're going to lower yourself. You're going to, in like kind, not in full measure, but in like kind of what Jesus did, lower yourself, die to yourself for the betterment of others so that others may grow as disciples. It's, it's a call to make other disciples. Even as we abide in him and we live the life of disciples, we die to ourselves and help make more disciples. And then lastly, number five, we are called to live grace-empowered resurrection lives like Jesus. I love this verse in Romans 8, 11 from the Apostle Paul. He says, he says this, he says, if the spirit who raised, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, there it is again, raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's saying a couple things here. First of all, he's saying that Jesus was raised. We've seen that again. The second thing he's saying is one day, those who trust in Jesus will rise like him, will be given resurrection glorified bodies. But the third thing he's saying is right now today, you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you. Christian, I don't know if you know this. If you were a Christian, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. I wanna say it again because I don't think you believe it. Christian, today, not some future day when you get your act together, today, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. And you are a recipient of his grace, not just on the day when you become a Christian, but every single day throughout the rest of your life, you are a recipient of God's grace. And you didn't do anything to choose to, to get that grace all for myself. No, God, who is gracious, gives it to us. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice how many past tense verbs were used in that verse. He has raised you. He has saved you. He has seated you with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Listen, one of the, the big uh, misconceptions about God's grace is that you can do something to earn it, whereas the Bible says, no, it's always a free gift of God's grace. It's because he's gracious, not because we're amazing. I got a kind of half-hearted amen from a few of you on that, right? God is gracious. God is gracious. So like Jesus was raised from the dead, we too now are spiritually raised from the dead, and one day we will rise like Jesus. So these are the building blocks. This is when we talk about this idea of our mission as a church, we talk about our mission as Christians, we talk about the mission that God sent Jesus on. Here's the, the basic five building blocks. We saw that one of them was to live a God-glorifying life. Second part was this idea of proclamation of the gospel. Third building block is living obedient and abiding lives of disciples. Number four is this dying to ourselves in the service of others to help other people grow as disciples. And then lastly, it's a continual receiving of God's grace, living resurrection lives, resurrection-empowered lives. 
And so over the last few months, we as the pastors of Sound City Bible Church got together and we really wrestled through these concepts and we kept talking and we kept trying different ways to, to put it together. And at the end, we landed on our mission statement as a church. And this is the way that we uh, phrased it. It says, Sound City Bible Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus, by receiving grace, by being disciples and making disciples. Like I said at the beginning, my hope and prayer is that you would see that this mission statement for us as a church is not our mission statement, it's God's mission statement that he has given to us by his word. This is not just something to get you excited about our church and it's not just a string of good religious sounding phrases so we could be like a real official church. This is something that is deeply rooted and grounded in the mission of God himself. Do you see this? Do you see how God himself is a sent and sending God and how we, it would actually even be uh, maybe unfair to say we have a mission. No, God has a mission and we're swept up in it by his grace. God has a mission and every church, capital C church, not just Sound City, but every church that calls on the name of Jesus is a part of this mission to glorify God by talking about Jesus and living redeemed and transformed lives. Writing a mission statement, by the way, just as a side note, is, is really hard because some of them are really vague. Some of them are really vague, like, we exist for fun. <laughs> oh, okay. What if my definition of fun is different from yours? And then some of them are really specific. Some of them are like, you know, we exist to, you know, train left-handed immigrants from South America how to juggle on Tuesdays. Like, oh, no part for me in that, I guess. That You guys can go do that. I think I personally and the other pastors, we looked at probably 20 to 30 different churches' mission statements. Some of them are paragraphs long. Some of them are like nine words. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I think by God's grace that we've landed on something that would be really helpful for us in the future as a church. Here's why I think it's helpful, because now we have something we can measure ourselves against. God's given us a mission. God has a mission and has called us to join him on his mission. Are the things we're doing as a church in line with God's mission. How many of you know there is no shortage of good things that we could get involved with as a church? There's no shortage of good things that you can get involved in as individuals. And many of them are good things. We're not talking about bad things like starting a you know, mafia group or something like that. We're talking about good things, but that maybe don't line up with God's mission or maybe in some cases actually take precedence over the mission of God. How many of you know that there are things in your life that even if they're good things, even if they're important things, sometimes compete to be ultimate things in your life, more important than the mission of God. So this is a measuring stick for us. This is a, a grounding, if you will, a foundation for us to come back to time and time again as the pastors of the church, as the members of the church, to come back and say, are we living the mission that God has called us to? Are the things that we're doing, are the activities that we're involved in, are they grounded in the mission of God or are they just good ideas? It helps us to ask ourselves questions like where might we drift from the mission of God? I certainly don't think this is a perfect mission statement. And again, I hope and pray you see that it is not about Sound City Bible Church. It is about God himself and the mission that he is on to rescue and redeem and save sinners, bringing glory ultimately to himself. And let me, speaking of glory, let me conclude with this thought. If you really wanted to boil the, the mission statement down to one point, it would be the glory of God. Really, that's the one point mission statement, to glorify God. All of the other pieces, the, the proclaiming Jesus, receiving grace, the being and making disciples, those are, those are spokes that come off of the wheel. Those are ways in which we seek to bring God glory. But the one point is glorify God. 
And I want to tell you something about glorifying God that is so incredibly important, and it's this. Glorifying God, when we are truly living our lives, reflecting his image in greater and greater uh, measure, it's where we find our deepest joy. It is where we as human beings were meant to live. There are a lot of things that we try to seek joy in. But ultimately, our greatest joy, our deepest joy is found in glorifying God. Let me show you two verses in closing. I think I had something like 136 verses in this sermon this week. If nobody uh, emails me this week and finds a bad reference, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy myself a cheesecake. That was a lot of work on these slides. I'll just do it anyway. Yeah, sounds good. You can join me. I want you to see that when Jesus came on mission, he did so with a heart of joy. Hebrews 12.1. It's giving us an encouragement. This is the writer of Hebrews giving God's people an encouragement. It says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now, now this is it. The, perf- the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, you can underline these words, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lived a hard life. Jesus endured a hard mission. It was not easy to live a sinless life. It was not easy to lay down his life. But it does not say anywhere in the Bible that Jesus did it with this attitude of like, okay, Father, I guess if that's what your will is, I'll submit myself. No, it says for the joy that was set before him. I don't care how happy you are, Jesus is happier. Jesus endured all that he endured because it was joy that motivated him to, to give his father glory by rescuing and redeeming sinners like us. Jesus experienced joy. We have joy as we glorify God. Psalm 1611 puts it this way. You make known to me the path of life, the, the way I'm supposed to live my life, the mission I'm on. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence, when I'm with you, God, living your mission, living life with you, abiding in you, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You were created for joy and your deepest joy is found in bringing God glory. For those of you who are here who are not Christians, in love, I want to ask you, what mission is your life on? As good or important of a thing as it may be, is it an ultimate thing? Is it living for God's glory? Is it experiencing your deepest joy? Some of you are living your lives on missions. They're, they're very good things. They're not bad things. But at the end of the day, they'll run out. There's a shelf life on them. Today may be the day where you say, I need to stop living my life on my mission for my glory and my joy. I want to live my life on mission for God. I'm talking about Jesus receiving his grace. Some of you need to receive grace. For those of you who are Christians, you can look at your life and say, where am I drifting from the mission of God? What things have become more important to me than God's mission? Set aside Sound City Bible Church mission, just God's mission for you as a Christian. What things are competing for primacy in your life? I want to call us to a time of response now. 
having heard the, the gospel proclaimed, I'm gonna invite you to respond in a variety of ways. The first way that we're gonna respond is through uh, the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so if, I'll just say this. If you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give whatsoever. You're welcome to uh, if you'd like, but we want to give out of an act of response and worship to our God. So if the financial stewards would come forward now and collect the offering, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. You can also uh, give online if you are somebody like me who doesn't carry a checkbook. Um, on our website, there's a, a give tab and you can do it that way. While they're collecting the offering, let me just give you some discussion questions, some things for you to, to talk about and wrestle with in your community groups or in your homes this week. Here are a, a handful of questions to hopefully get some conversation started. Number one, do you think that humans were hardwired for mission, purpose, and meaning? Why or why not? That's my first contention. I want you to talk about it. Why, why is that, that we're hardwired for mission? Number two, what is God's mission and how does it relate to our mission? Don't just start with us. We wanna start with God and the mission that he himself is on. Number three, what does it mean to give glory to someone or something and why is it so important to remain focused on God's glory? Again, this is not a time to rag on your Facebook friends for posting too much about their favorite restaurant, but talk about what it means to glory in something. Number four, read Hebrews 1.3. What does it mean that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature? Number five, start talking personally of the, the five building blocks, these five elements of a, of a missional life that we talked about. Which ones are strengths in your life? Which ones are maybe areas where growth is needed? Some of you are really, really good about telling people about Jesus. You have a, maybe a natural gift of evangelism. You love to tell people about Jesus, but you really need to grow in your receiving his grace. You, like many Christians I talk to, have thought, yeah, Jesus saves me by his grace, but now it's all up to me from here on out. No, it's not. Every day is a gift of his grace. Number six, Jesus accomplished his mission perfectly. Jesus on the cross said the words, it is finished. How does that empower us for our mission? And then number seven, lastly, just check your heart. How might you be prone to mission drift, to get off mission or let other things that are even good things uh, distract you from the mission of God himself? So I hope that you will respond this week with some of those sorts of conversations in your community groups and in your homes. We're also gonna respond with the celebration of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice. And we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out, that we might be transformed, that we might be made disciples of Jesus. If you're a guest or a visitor, if you are a Christian, you are welcome to join us at the table today. If you are not a Christian, you are welcome to give your sin to Jesus, to trust in him, to repent of your sins. Uh, Pastor Shane, some other leaders will be standing off to the side here. would love to even talk with you, pray with you right now as we begin this time of response. If you want to give your sin to Jesus and trust in him and join us at the table for the first time today. And here's, here's my prayer. My prayer today is that you would celebrate communion in a missional sort of way. As we celebrate the Lord's table, you remember that God himself is the one who feeds and nourishes and empowers us for the work of mission, that, that we are to bring glory to God. So as you eat the bread today, would you be reminded that God ministers his grace to us so that we can live on his mission. And we're gonna sing. Sean and the, the worship band is gonna lead us in some songs that speak of uh, the, the kingship of Jesus and the mission that he came on and the way in which he accomplished everything for us. So I'm gonna invite you to stand if you would and we'll begin our time of response. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you have called us onto your mission. God, I thank you that you haven't 
left us to just guess what we should be doing with our lives. You haven't left us to just figure it out, but God, that you have showed us the mission that you yourself are on and that you call all of your people onto that mission. God, for us as a church family, I pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us to remain faithful. God, I even pray for 50 years down the road, for 100 years down the road, that we as a church and, and those uh, who we pass it on to in years ahead would be faithful to your mission and to your gospel. Help us now to celebrate, to sing loudly, to rejoice at the Lord's table because of Jesus. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. And everyone said, amen. Church, let's come forward and respond when you're ready.